Welcome to WWC Winning with Connections podcast. And uh, I am here with Karen Krimsky, who is, I will let her give her title, but works with the Procurement Technical Advisory Center at USF. And if you have not heard of PTACs, they can be unbelievably helpful and are getting even more so. We, we worked with the PTAC, gosh, probably 10 years ago. And what I see now in what the PTAC does and what they're doing for small businesses, particularly in the government contracting space, is remarkably different than it was even 10 years ago. So, Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Can you give me a little bit of who you are, what you do for the PTAC, and what the PTAC is? PTAC, uh, first of all, is funded by the Defense Logistics Agency. And the whole purpose of having PTAC folks, representatives throughout the country, is to help small businesses actually get into government contracting and be successful in government contracting. Of course, there's a difference in that in being in it and being successful. Mm-hmm. And the difference, hopefully, is because the PTAC can help to provide some intervention and guidance to get the folks there. So what we what we really do is we help to put together a framework, a strategy, a roadmap, if you will. I mean, that's that's truly what I like to, to do with folks is not only get through them the very beginning. Like, for example, today I had a client who is is doing OK in the commercial sector, but people always get these little whispers in their ear that they should be doing government contracting or they should be selling to the government or whatever. And it, it's always interesting for me to find out, like, who said that and why? Mm-hmm. Um, because even though the government is true, the government buys most anything, but they don't necessarily buy everything. But it's but what's really important and a lot of people do not understand is, yes, the government, the federal government, and I, I talk about federal mostly, that's, that's pretty much my vertical, but most people don't understand that you really have to understand how the government buys it and who they're currently buying it from and in what kinds of quantities. Because if you try to sell something that, first of all, maybe an agency doesn't buy or they buy it in a particular way, particular contract vehicle that you don't have or some other things, or maybe maybe they're using a, a, a sole source that they have to use, such as Ability One, um, and those are particular kinds of things that are that are purchased that way through two particular agencies. If, if you don't have an understanding of that, you really can waste a whole lot of time and end up with a whole lot of nothing. Yes. Yes. So I realized as I was kind of going through the podcast that we have done so far, we've never actually gone back to the basics. And so if you want to be a federal contractor, what are the steps you have to take? We've never talked about beta SAM registration and DUNS numbers, which are now changing. And we've actually never gone back that far. And, you know, a number of the firms that that are probably listening to this have done that years ago. But a number of firms that are listening to this probably haven't. So I know you work not only with brand new firms or firms that are, are just brand new to the federal government. You work with firms like us. You work with firms who are in that middle space. Uh, trying to figure out, you know, new funding or new offerings or, or you know, how to do a SIBR or how to do. I, I know you you kind of cover that whole path, but I know you do a whole lot with brand, brand new firms. So as if I am a brand new firm, 
what do you start with? And if you are absolutely either brand new to being a firm or let's at least just say you've got a firm ready to go, you've already established it, you've already got some products. What are the first things you have to do to get into the government contracting space? Well, the, the first thing that I have to do because of my funding is I have to, I can only work with companies that are already registered and primarily in the state of Florida because we do get state funding. So I have to confirm that the company is already registered in SunBiz, either as they're domiciled in Florida or they're a foreign corporation. So once I confirm that and I look at the ownership, that kind of gives me a glimpse into what their possibilities are, perhaps if they're majority owned by a woman, then they can become a woman-owned certified if they're just looking at some of those kinds of things. The next thing that I think is really important is a lot of firms don't even realize this, that they they either have a Dun & Bradstreet number or they need to get a Dun & Bradstreet number. And that's and you mentioned that a minute ago, Lauren, and actually that the Dun & Bradstreet system is, is going away, right. quote, unquote, going away. And the, the federal government's actually already awarded the contract to another firm. And what they're going to be doing is in the near term, they're going to be assigning unique identification numbers to every contractor that's in the federal system for award management. And, and I don't know what the time frame is on that. I, I thought originally it was the end of this year, but it could be a little bit later since everything seems to be pushing back. So once you get your Dun & Bradstreet number, then you come over to the System for Award Management or SAM, SAM.gov. And and register in that system, which is completely free. It's free to get a Dun & Bradstreet number. It's free to register in SAM.gov. I have so many clients that will just Google System for Award Management, and they get caught up in the search engine optimization of a lot of the government contracting companies mm-hmm. who want to charge them $500, whatever it is. It's the number du jour, basically, it seems like right. to me, because there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. So they, the, the company must register in System for Award Management. The pieces that you need in system for award management in order to successfully complete the registration are you need your um, you need your EIN number which you get from the Internal Revenue Service you need your Dun and Bradstreet number which hopefully you've gotten from the Dun and Bradstreet people you need your bank account information and a lot of people kind of wince at that but the federal government does do direct deposit in some cases so that's why they want the bank account information and the last thing is is your industry codes your north American industry classification codes, usually referred to as NAICS codes. And a lot of people don't really know how to go about finding this. So this is actually one of the things that I try to help them with. NAICS codes, as you know, Lauren, are very broad. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes it's very difficult for someone to say, well, I kind of fit into that space, but I'm not really that space. I'm not really this. I'm not. It's kind of like a hybrid of things. That's okay. What I t- usually tell with people with NAICS codes, there's no punishment for putting in a code that maybe isn't quite right for you. In fact, sometimes what I do is I ask the client, you know, where do your referrals come from? Who, Who basically feeds you? And, for example, if there are tradespeople and they get referrals from construction, you know, I might say to them, you know, you, you might want to put in construction NAICS codes. You even might want to put the architecture's code, NAICS code in because if you're also going to get opportunities sent to you through the Beta SAM system, it, it really would behoove you to know very early on 
when the project, when something's going to go into the ground, because a lot of times if it already gets started, then you're like out of luck. The team's already right. been formed. You have no chance. So you want to know early on. So right. I, I, and because I have an extensive marketing background, I think it's really, really important for companies to know where their referrals can come from because in, in some cases, in a lot of cases, Pretty much when people are starting in the federal system, it's really a better idea for them to start as a subcontractor, not as a prime. Right. And there's there's no shame in that. I mean, people, I think, get kind of wigged out because it's not good for their ego or something if they can't be the prime contractor. When in reality, you know, and you know this, Lauren, but money is, is you, money. you have a lot more headaches with <laughs> being a prime than you do yes. a sub. Yes. Well, and look, performance is performance. Money is money. That's right. And I, I don't know, you know, even when we started the company, we had the, the, the work. We knew the customer who wanted us to do the work, but we didn't have a contract vehicle. And so we really had to look to a prime contractor to have that contract vehicle, you know, who had that contract vehicle so that we could get the work. We were able to turn it to our own work and we were the prime soon thereafter. But there is, as you say, no shame in being a sub. So I would agree with you. Nakes, throw as many in there. Anything that looks even remotely like what you do. Yep. And then when you see something that comes up that is in a Nakes that you didn't have on there, toss it back on. There. It's, it's very easy to toss them on there. It doesn't hurt you in any way, shape or form. But there should be a fairly easy primary Nakes code. And it's been a while since I've done this because I'm not the one putting it in anymore. But I, I, when I started it, you had to have the primary NAICS code as well as kind of all the rest of the NAICS code. Is that still the case? You do have to have a primary NAICS. And, and one of the things, you know, speaking of that, one of the things that a lot of people don't understand why it's really important to be very strategic about your primary NAICS is because your primary NAICS determines your size standard. You know, and why is that important? Well, because you know, for as long as possible, you really probably want to stay as a small business in your revenue classification. Some, most NAICS codes are revenue uh, based. Uh, that, well, I guess they're about 50-50 and the other 50% are employee, number of employees. And then there's a few selected ones that are both revenue and the number of employees. But that's, that's very, very important because if you're a small business and you're looking at small business opportunities, you have to be a small business in the NAICS code that the contracting officer assigns to that opportunity. Right, right. And after a while, you don't want to have to change that primary NAICS code. So if you can find one that is higher, eh, sometimes it, it helps, sometimes it doesn't. So fair enough. We've now established a company before they came to you that is headquartered here in Florida or, or established here in Florida or is a foreign co- corporation here in Florida, meaning that it is headquartered somewhere else, but it is established also here in Florida. And if they're working with another PTAC, it would be the same thing, I would assume, in whatever state they're in. Right. We've So we have a company. It's established. We have a DUNS number. We have a NAC, uh, We have a EIN number. We have a bank account. We've registered in Beta SAM. Now what? I just go out and get government contracts. I I. That's what a lot of people think. Right? I've heard that. Okay, I've got this. Where are the contracts? So the next thing that I that I really try to do once we have all the preliminaries done with is I then try to assist people in determining who their most likely clients, in other words, agencies, 
would be. And I usually start people off. I, I was trained through FPDS, Federal Procurement Data System, which is an open source historical tool that now is over on the beta.sam.gov because a lot of these platforms are merging. Right. So I, I show people how to really kind of research where they would go. And, th- and you can research via NAICS codes. You can re- research via keywords. Mm-hmm. You can research via PSC codes in many cases. You can take a look at if you know a certain company that does that does a lot of work in the federal government, you can just put their NAICS code in and see where their footprint is. So it, it really gives you the agencies that are that are that are that are contracting for a lot of work and whatever whatever search tool that you put in. But you also can even look at it from the perspective of of special of, of socioeconomic opportunities. For mm-hmm. example, I have some clients that are eventually going to be interested in getting an 8A certification. And just as an aside, I, I tell people that are starting out, starting out is not what you you don't want to get an 8A certification. Right. A lot of folks come to me and that's a first thing because somebody's told them again they should you should get an 8a or you should get a gsa schedule or you know whatever they think that you should get because somebody's mentioned to them that this is a good thing for one reason or another but an 8a is first of all it's only nine years and it's only awarded once and most typically you have to have at least two years in business and you really have to have some spread either in the commercial or some some variety of clients and not just one client so an 8a is not a good option but if you if you have a client that you know is a good potential in a couple of years, that's this is what I do. Uh, what I'll do is in FPDS is I will actually put the search word or the term or the NAICS and I'll put 8A after it. Mm-hmm. So so what I can do is I can say, okay, so these agencies are, are contracting a lot in the 8A space. If you want to get there eventually, maybe what you want to do is take a look at trying to do some contracting in with that agency with the idea being that whenever you're at a level where it would be a good idea to get an 8A, you right. already have a relationship with those people. Right, right. And I I have given that same exact piece of advice more times than I can count. Don't get your 8A too early because if you do, you've wasted it. And nine years seems like a long time. Gosh, it seems like a long time until you, you know, are near the end of that nine years and realizing you missed the first couple of years of being able to leverage that, that status because you just weren't ready. You didn't have the past performance. You didn't have the knowledge you couldn't write the proposals, you couldn't go after the larger stuff. And so you're, you really just kind of wasted that, that 8A status. So I, I a thousand percent agree with that, with that advice. And you uh, would be, you would be surprised, Lauren, or maybe you wouldn't, uh, people that get an 8A early on and they're three or four years into it and they have, they have nothing. They have no contracts. They have no money. Just talk to somebody who a couple of days ago who had to say that, you know, they have never used their 8A. They don't know what to do with it because they just they don't they don't have the the reach yet. They don't know what they don't understand government contracting. They don't have the relationships with the customers or understand, again, who's who's buying what they're selling is a huge issue. So let's go back to that because it's it's this is the stuff and it's funny and I'm, I maybe I should apologize in advance for this because I send everyone over to you when we get people and we we 
talked to a whole lot of small businesses through all sorts of different mechanisms when they are kind of too early in the game, I can't help them very well because you know, I've, I get a lot of companies coming to me and you and I have joked about this before. I get a lot of companies coming to me saying, hi, I'm an 8A. Hi, I'm a hub zone. Hi, I'm a, you know, yeah. uh, do you have any positions for me? Well, no, <laughs> right? No, I don't have any positions for you because are what are you offering me? I can fill my own positions and, and particularly as a small business myself, I don't have any small business targets. I am always happy to help small businesses. I am always happy to pull along small businesses. But what are you offering that is different? Um, And it could be I'm cheaper, right? But at that point, I'm going to look in and go, why are you cheaper? Because, you know, I I talked to someone a couple years ago at Sophic, and they said, oh, you got UTEP. As soon as we got our our large contract, everybody came out of the woodwork. um, And they said, Hey, we'd really like to help you with UTEP. And, you know, it's a staffing contract. Okay. So great. Can you give me a really low wrap rate? Well, no. Okay. Well, what, what kind of, you know, what kind of benefits package do you have? Do you meet the rest of us? Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't have any benefits yet. I'm brand new. Okay. Well, so why would I give you a position that I can staff better by myself? then you can, you've got to have something that you're offering, right? Yeah. Um, and so how do you figure out what your value proposition is? And, and I know you and I talk about this a lot and I, yeah. I send people over to you first and then say, okay, send them back when they're ready to talk to me. But when they don't have this piece of it, you get them. <laughs> so how do you, how do you work with them on that stuff? Well, the thing, the thing about it is, and I, and this is usually one of the first things in the first meeting when I have with people is you have to figure out, you as a company have to figure out what your value proposition is. And if you can't articulate that, then nobody else is going to articulate it for you. And you have to understand how to differentiate yourself. And I, and I always tell the story too, um, which is something that's happened, that happened to me, which was a, was a big embarrassment, but, um, you mean, you remember when I was working for the IT, IT company, mm-hmm. and um, I happened to score a meeting with someone that was pretty high up in the in the contracting for the contract vehicle that was out of HHS, which is CIO SP3. Mm-hmm. And so I happened to, to score an opportunity to meet with her. And um, what happened was is that she that I hadn't done my research. Mm-hmm. I really hadn't, and I was asking her questions of stuff that I could have learned on the internet. I could have Googled it and and yeah. learned. And I could have had a higher level conversation that would have been more meaningful and more of an opportunity, but instead I wasted it. And she called me on it. She said, you were not prepared for this meeting. And so I tell people, you know, you want to, you want to do a 360 on, if you identify an agency, maybe it's Army Corps of Engineers, maybe it's NIH, maybe it's, maybe it's Federal Bureau of Prison, whatever it is, you want to do a 360. You want to have those deeper dive questions information so for number one is you make a much better impression on anybody whether it's a prime or a federal officer because it's not just like uh, well I know you have a bag of money so I want some of it kind of thing and and second of all you get 
you get more of an opportunity to get some intel that yes. maybe others would not have. Right. Um, so it, it's so important, and, and you you bring yourself. You know, there's probably 500 small businesses for every one federal employee that want to talks wants to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. And if you can't figure out what to articulate, what do you bring to the party? Why they should talk to you? How are you bigger, better, faster, cheaper, whatever it is, more innovative, whatever it is. If you can't articulate that and tell them why they should be using you, then, you know, you're going to be in the wait line for a very long time. Exactly. So uh, I went years ago to one of the small business conferences. I think it was uh, the U.S. Women's Chamber, one of those. I think it was the U.S. Women's Chamber. And there was a storm the hill day and there was a, a bunch of staffers sitting up on a uh, on a panel and people are sitting in the audience asking questions and somebody stood up who was not a woman by the way at a women's chamber of commerce event but that's beside the point he stood up and said look i'm i think he was an 8a i'm an 8a and i sell office supplies and I'm not getting anything. You guys are going to Staples and Office Depot and the large distributors. You're not coming to small businesses. And the staffer, I think, was a little tired and said, let me ask a blunt question. Are you cost competitive with Staples and Office Depot? And he said, no, I can't be. I'm small. I can't get the volume discounts that they do. And she said, look, you're selling post-it notes. Why in any universe would the government pay more for post-it notes, which are truly a fungible <laughs> item, right? Yeah. There's no difference between, in fact, he was getting it from the same distributor. He just didn't have the volume discounts. Why would I buy from you when you are probably twice the price of what I can get in volume discounts across these kind of best in class vehicles for office supplies. Why would I do that? And I think it was an incredibly useful lesson. You have to figure out what you're giving that is not just your small business status because coming in with your handout and saying, but I'm a small business. Where is yeah. my piece of the that pie? No. Um, so, you know, if you are a small business, you you can be more innovative. You might be cheaper, although I, I hesitate to always. I think everyone thinks small businesses can be cheaper. I think it's probably because a lot of small businesses are cutting corners or not doing what they're supposed to do when they're that much cheaper. And frankly, you can get a lot cheaper when you've got volume, like for the Post-it notes. But above and beyond just that you've got to figure out why you the 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 small business is a check in the box right and we talk about this all the time i know you've had me come talk to the ptac we've i've been on panels for you or with you uh multiple times where we talk about this what are you yourself bringing to the table and then you get to oh by the way tell someone that you are also a small business and they get to check the box right Right. So how do they do that? How do they figure that out? 
Well, I think the thing that you want, you've got to do, it, it still goes back to research. And one of the thing, one of the ways that you can find out, well, first of all, if you're using FPDS and you find out who the, who the companies are that an agency is using, I mean, that's one way to know what the primes. But as far as the small businesses are concerned, you know, one of the things that I show people is how to, how to research other companies that do what they do in the dynamic small business search. So it goes to DSBS and then you can put any kind of criteria that you want and this is particularly helpful if you're looking to to really understand how to steer an acquisition so if you're a small business and let's say you're a woman-owned small business and you want to you see something that's in a what they call a pre-solicitation stage which means you're either in an RFI or a source of sought the government's Mm -hmm. actually doing research who is out there that can do the work and they they would like to set it aside for a, a, a small business of any socioeconomic category, but they have to have reason to believe and they have to have a minimum of two qualified companies in any socioeconomic category to set it aside. So you, as a small business owner, so let's say you're a woman-owned small business, you can actually use DSBS to to find other women-owned companies that do what you do. And my word for this is coopetition. Yes. So you're going to cooperate with them to get them to respond to an RFI, a source of sought notice, to to get the government to under to get the agency to understand. Oh, okay, there's two or four or whatever women-owned small businesses out there that can do the work that we're requiring. That's a way where you can get the government to actually do set it aside. So what you've done is you've eliminated the sales funnel. I mean, you're, so now you're not bidding against all the behemoths right. or you know middle middle government contracting companies. Now you're strictly toe to toe with other companies. And if you're woman owned, I mean, you may actually only have five or six competitors that are going to respond to the requirement. So right. you you have a very good opportunity to open yourself up for even if it's a small contract. If you're just starting, particularly we talked about before about not necessarily or being a prime, but at least you have a a toehold where you can learn and get some past performance, and and it's it's an opportunity for you to get to know an agency. Yep, yep. And we've actually done it where we'll turn around and say, hey, look, we're all going to put in, you know, there's times when we've teamed with a group of us because, you know, I have one piece, they have another piece, whatever, but we're all in the same socioeconomic category one of us makes more sense to prime than the others, but all, all three of us go in to the RFI and say, I can do this as the prime. I can do this as the prime. Wait, no, I can do this as the prime. And then when they set it aside, all three of you happen to go together. So there really is no competition at that point. Right. Um, there are three firms that could do this even as, you know, all, all three as prime, but you get together in the end and say, okay, who's better at doing this piece and who's going to get this, that, and the other. So, so there are ways those RFIs, I, I got to tell you when we were smaller, I didn't, I don't think they used them nearly as much 10, 15 years ago, but, or I just didn't notice them, but we use them to great advantage now. And in fact, I, I, we rarely go after something unless we've gone in on the RFI first. 
See, now that, and I think that is another really good point because I have people that, I've had numerous people, small businesses that want to jump into it when it's an RFP request for proposal. And my first question is, is that, okay, so do you have any relationship at all with this agency? Do you know anybody in the agency? Have you talked to anybody in the agency? Have you responded to the RFI or the source of sought notices? Well, you know, if every, if every one of those questions, if it's no, then my, my question to them is, then why are you doing this now? Because you have to you have to understand that it, it, no matter where you are, that if you haven't if you haven't had some kind of relationship with an agency, unless you're doing an RFQ, then it's kind of different. But if you haven't had some kind of a relationship with an agency, what you need to know is there's probably been at least. 10 companies that have had contact with the contracting officer, the program manager, the small business, whatever it is, that already have preceded you in developing that relationship. And and if you don't have anything, plus the fact, here's here's the other, I think, even the bigger kicker, is if you submit an RFP and it's crap, and you don't understand the mission of the agency, you haven't done any homework, you don't know anything about them, you just say, oh, I can do this. So you throw something together. And that is the first introduction that they see to your organization. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've really just shot yourself in the foot. Yep. I mean, talk about not putting your best foot forward on the the first go-round. I mean, I, I I think that's just ridiculous. Now, I know that there's other people government contracting consultants that do not agree with me on this. I've I've had verbal conversations with them about that and they say that I'm, you know, I'm wrong and that, but and the other thing about RFPs that you have to be very careful about is and if you read them closely, which actually I will I do want to emphasize this. This that is the number one reason why people get disqualified for opportunities is they don't read and they don't respond to the government with what the government wants. They respond to the government with what they think they should have. Yes. Or right. I, and we have a whole podcast and a couple of them coming further on on how to respond to an RFP and how to kind of rip it apart and, and make sure that you're responding Good. to what you're asking for because that is it's an art. It doesn't it doesn't make sense when you're you know, I want to tell a story, I want to tell the the way I would sell to the government right. when I'm just talking to them. That's not how you do it for a, a proposal. Right. You do what the government asked for, even if it's crazy. Well, I, I remember Chris Harrington from SOCOM. I remember him telling me, you know, about even with RFIs, a lot of times there's a page limit and a type font and, yeah. uh, you know, whatever. And he, I mean, they literally, agencies literally have people on the front end that will count pages, look at font, look at if it talks about margins, whatever it is. And if you don't comply with those basic front end requirements, the question to them is, how are you going to, how are you going to perform on a contract when you can't even read, you know, an RFI? Right. Right. So, but but the one thing that I did want to say about an RFP, and I appreciate what you're talking about in terms of tearing it apart, but I do want to say this about an RFP. One of the things about reading it, and if you know your industry well, one of the things that you can spot fairly easily is if an RFP is what they call wired for somebody. And and I remember a guy coming in to me, talk to me about leadership training, and it was a it was a seven module. 
something requirement for some military base. And they were, the company was well qualified to do it. But when he showed me what the RFP was, I read it and it was, there was a certification in there. And I said, this is really odd. Do leadership companies, trainers, do, do they, have this certification? And he said, well, no, not usually. I said, eh, there's something kind of weird about this then. I don't know what it is, but I'm thinking this is wired for somebody. Mm-hmm. Well, sure enough, this company responded, and the company that got six of the seven modules, we looked at their website, and they had that certification. Of course. So, I mean, so it was, you know, so they wasted their time. I mean, a company is not in business to be a publication company. Um, You're not you're not there to write response. I mean, maybe you are. Maybe that's your business that you do proposal, which is fine if that's the business you're in. But if you're in a business of IT or machine shops or something else, that's not what you want to spend time on. So, you know, you, you really have to read it closely. And if there's something that that your gut or whatever is telling you is not right, then then I say, you know what, don't waste your time. Look for something else that maybe is at an earlier stage or that you have a more reasonable chance of, of being successful. Yep. And then I, I, I wholeheartedly agree, and I am amazed at how often, look, I mean, what we do as firms is try to shape things so that we are the most you're, obvious. You're the best person to do it. Right. And so... You know, when you are getting further along in in your kind of journey, it's a win when we say you need past performance in this agency doing this kind of work because we know that there's no one else who has it. So it's a bona fide need that the government that's going to tell them who's going to be good at the contract. But gosh, if it, if it's not me, who's going to be the only one who could do that? And I'm trying as a, in my shaping to get that. So if you see that in there, somebody else has been in there shaping it and you're not likely to get it. Yep, that's um, right. That's exactly and, right. And that's the way the game is played. It's not fair or unfair. It's it learn how is. to play that game. It just is. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. But but what that what that should tell a company is you too have that responsibility and that opportunity, but you have to be in the game early and you have to be developing relationships with agency people so they're going to tell you things and you can develop a dialogue with them and you get some intel. Something else that's related to that, Lauren, is you know, and I can appreciate what you're saying about a lot of companies want to work with you because you've kind of rolled the stone up to the tippy top of the mountain now, so everybody's kind of looking at you and so you know they everybody wants to work with the successful people which of course that makes sense so if you after you do your research and you identify maybe you identify okay wwt's got this contract or they're going to get this contract or they're on this team or whatever it is and i would like to do it um i would like to work with them so maybe they develop a relationship with you, Lauren, and you're in the pre-acquisition stage, and so you're looking for the team. You know, who do I put into into the places that I need for to fill this requirement? So maybe you start talking to a couple of companies, and you say, you know what, I think I really like them. So you you kind of give them maybe a little bit more information than they had before. So all of a sudden. That's intel, right? And that's intel that maybe no other company that talks to you is going to have. Well, right. if a company is looking for to go to work with a with a large teaming partner, the worst thing that you want to do is you never, ever want to go to that large company. So let's say that they 
they decide that they might want to also go work for uh, Lockheed Martin or Raytheon or whatever, and they get some intel. You never go from one organization of what you've learned to go to the large organization and say, oh, guess what? I found this out about this, whatever this opportunity is, and I, so I can really work with you, and we can really team together, blah, blah, blah. Well, once you give a company your intel that you've learned that nobody else has, you've you've lost your value because right. they don't need you anymore. Right. And a lot, of, a lot of companies don't understand that. They're just so excited to find out something that nobody else knows, and they think that makes them valuable. It does make them valuable, but you don't go and tell the organization what it is. Yeah. You you put your documents together. You get NDAs. You get um, your teaming agreements in place and all of that before you divulge confidential information. Absolutely. And also, if you got information from someone who gave it to you in good faith, you probably don't want to give that information to someone else. Because uh, I know where to come for that. No because, okay. Right. And you're going to get a reputation for burning your your kind of relationships and, and sharing information that's not fair to share. So speaking about relationships and figuring out, you know, again, you and I have talked about this more times than I can count with this idea of, you know, going to a firm saying, hey, I saw that you just got this contract. We can do the staffing on this contract or we can help you with this, that and the other. At that point, that firm has probably had their team in place, particularly for a large contract for months, anywhere between six months. And, you know, in UTEP's case, I think it was like three years before we actually got the award that Mm -hmm. we have the team in place. You're you're absolutely too late. What you want to do is get into them and say, hey, I saw you got this really large contract. First of all, if there's ever any niche things, we're here, but that's not what I want to talk to you about. I love that you've got this past performance. I'd really like to talk to you about this other thing that I've got visibility on that I think your past performance could be really helpful for. Mm-hmm. I'd really like for you to prime this and bring us on your team there. Or have you looked at this? We'd really like this niche that for something that is six months, again, six months, 12 months, 18 months ahead, but it's not if you're not bringing something to the table, you know, again, our first prime contract, our first subcontract, sorry, was somebody wanted us, customer wanted us. And we went to the prime and said, Hey, you've got this vehicle in this office. Can we throw this work on your vehicle? Because we don't have an, we don't have access to the, to a contract that's bringing something to the table, obviously. If you have a relationship with this customer and you've got intel about this broader thing, but you can't go after it, that's information. That's yeah. that's meaningful. But you got to have something when you're bringing it either to a prime or to the government customer that distinguishes you, that sets you apart, that puts you on a path to them choosing you over any other small business. Right. And I think that's something small businesses don't necessarily understand. Well, it's all it's again, it's part of your value add. Right. And it can't your value add cannot be. I know I've said this five or six times now, but your value add cannot be. I am a woman owned small business. Oh, yeah. They hate that. Small businesses are a dime a dozen. Yeah. And I've got my list of 10 women owned small businesses who do exactly what you do, mm-hmm. but do it better than you. Yeah. So if you want to show me that you're better, develop a relationship, figure out what that looks like, figure out what your value add is outside of being in a socioeconomic 
category. Well, and a lot of people think that because they they have good customer service or they deliver on time or they're sensitive to, I mean, all of that's good, but it's 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 that's the baseline. Right. I mean, if you, you don't have good, if you don't have good customer service, go home because right. that's not, right. you're not that even, can't be the only thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, all right. Well, this was a great starter, and I'm glad that we kind of went back to the basics here because I realized we you know we jumped into this podcast. And started talking about kind of the, the big picture, but never really got to the granular. How do you actually sign up for SAM.gov? How do you look at stuff in beta SAM? So this is a great primer on that. And I really appreciate it. How does somebody get to the PTAC and what can they, what can they ask of you when they, when well, they get there? It seems like lately people are finding planes, trains and automobiles. I mean, I, it's really strange now the way that people are getting to me. I mean, right. I have people that get to me on LinkedIn. Um, I have people that um, will do, we can, you can actually go to the sbdctampabay.com website and request um, a consultant to reach out to you. Everything that we do requires a request for consulting form because basically that gives us permission to right. consult with you. We also want to make sure that we're dealing with the an owner mm-hmm. uh, because we don't want to provide confidential information or whatever with someone who can just say that, you know, that they're part of an organization or whatever. So, so that's, that's basically, I mean, I've, like I said, I've had LinkedIn people, I've had email people, I've people come through the portal, I've had referrals. We, and because one of the things I do want to emphasize, Lauren, is that, you know, just in the shop, in the, in the shop that I work, the Small Business Development Center, we are a group of collaborative professionals that can (laughs) really assist people with many, many facets. So if somebody needs help with developing their budget or somebody needs, they might need some capital and they don't know how to go about that, we have someone who can actually guide people through the process. If someone needs a marketing plan, if someone's looking at international sales, we have an international consultant. We have a bevy of, of, of talented folks and numerous industries that can really, and we refer to each other. So you're not stuck. And I'll, I'll be the first one to tell you, I'm not a finance person. So I know what I, I know what I can do. I know the basics. I know how people get started with that. But I always refer to, we have three or four finance people in our shop. Right. So, you know, it's, it, so they get a, they get a, a, a collaborative group of consultants that they can use however they see fit. And there's no mandatory process with us. So we don't say, okay, you have to have you have to do this you have to do this you have to sign up for this you have to have right. three sessions i mean it's all client driven we tell you what we think what we suggest and then it's up to the client that's great that's wonderful and it i i know this is absolutely particularly for those who are not savvy about government contracting this is absolutely the place to start is is at the ptac and if you haven't figured it out yet they are the ones to guide you so that you don't have to smack your head against the wall so many times going back to, you know, Googling it and figuring it out and going to the regulations and trying to piece through what that what that is. You guys can take the veil off of that easily. And I know you guys also do a whole lot of events. You do a whole lot of speakers. You do a whole lot of kind of roundtables and such so that so that people can get not just from you, but from other people who have, have lived it. Uh, kind of what those are. So I strongly suggest, and I in fact refer pretty much every business I talk to, if they haven't gotten all of this basic stuff done, first and foremost, go to the PTAC, get everything knocked out with someone like Karen, 
because it will save you time. It will save you money. You don't have to pay for this stuff. That's right. It's not. Uh, that's right. And, and, you know, there are plenty of people out there who will take your money, uh, <laughs> but there's no reason to do that on this stuff. This stuff is not rocket science. Yeah. This is not rocket science. And I, and I do tell people, you know, when or if the time comes when you need stuff that I can't, feel like I'm doing a good job for you, I will refer you to those who do have that particular talent or skill. Right. right. And and there's plenty of places for outsourcing that stuff. But here first, figuring this out, getting it done, getting a marketing plan, like you said, getting your your SAM.gov registration set up, doing your reps and certs and understanding what those mean. That's not something you need to pay for. No. You need to go sit down with a PTAC. You guys are amazing for that. And then you can get into the next level of stuff. And then you can start. And, and the PTAC's really good for that as well. But first and foremost, just get it done and sit down with someone like Karen. If you're here in Tampa, Karen's amazing. I can vouch for her. But get it done that way first. So, Karen, thank you so much for your time today. You're this welcome. Wonderful. And I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. I enjoy doing it. And I, you know... My success is my client's success. Absolutely. So that's the way that we work. You know, we're not successful in and of ourselves. It's the success of our clients that really uh, propels us and helps us to do more good work. Great. Well, it was wonderful to talk to you, and we look forward to having you on another podcast at some point. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Take Karen. Bye-bye.